Sounds interesting. Well, good morning. Glad to be with you. Looking forward to continuing the subject that we've been talking about the last uh, couple of Sundays. We'll continue uh, a couple more, about six weeks we're going to spend in a series called Turbulence. We're talking about those times in our lives when uh, things just uh, spiral out of control. And at least for a while, at least for a while, you, you don't know how you're going to survive what's happening to you. Uh, it's scary when your life is like that, when you're in a time of turbulence. This afternoon, I'm going to get on an airplane on 9-11, second time I've flown on 9-11, and uh, I'm going to get on an airplane and fly to Chicago. I'm going to be in Chicago for a couple of days uh, with a group of uh, pastors who are going to be talking about rural church planting, rural church planting, and uh, kind of exploring what God might have for Trinity as we think about uh, churches in small towns in eastern Washington and eastern Oregon and what our role might be in relation to those churches. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. Not quite sure uh, what, to, what, to, uh, what God will show us. But uh, one thing I hope I don't do is run into turbulence. Especially uh, the kind of turbulence that a group of passengers uh, ran into this summer. Maybe you saw the news story. I did. A group of people on a JetBlue flight. There was a JetBlue flight from, from Boston to Sacramento. And uh, when they flew over the Great Plains, they hit a tremendous amount of turbulence. And uh, for quite a while, they were just being bumped around and thrown around. And according to one news report, at one point, uh, this airplane dropped 3,000 feet in one free fall. How would, you like to, how, how would you like to fall for over half a mile in an airplane? All right, that's a scary deal. And uh, th- these people, they, l- people were, f- passengers were floating in the airplane. That's what was going on. Passengers were floating in the airplane. At one point, the plane dropped so hard and fast that uh, people who weren't wearing their seatbelts hit their head on the top of the plane and dented, dented the airplane. And uh, passengers who had their seatbelts on were pulling unseatbelted passengers down to the plane. Uh, somehow a toilet in the lavatory became disattached from the floor. I don't know how that happened, but that happened. And uh, by the time this turbulence kind of settled down, they had about 24 people who were in need of medical attention. So they, took an, they made an emergency landing, made an emergency landing in Rapid City. And you can imagine after that kind of turbulence, when those people finally, finally put their feet on solid ground, you can imagine how they were, they were so happy, they probably didn't even mind that Rapid City is in South Dakota. You know? They were so happy just to be on the ground. Turbulence is a scary deal. Your life, you, don't, you can't imagine if you're, if you're going to survive what's happening to you. Lisa and I... Uh, have had a conversation not that long ago about times in our lives when we have felt like life was out of control. Those times in our lives. So we've been married 33 years. So we can look back on our life together and we can identify these, you know, you can kind of graph your life story a little bit with your spouse. And, and uh, we've looked back and uh, we've, we see five different times in the 33 years that we've been together. Five different times when we, we would say, you know, that was, we, we kind of felt like we were in free fall and we didn't know what the future would look like after this. Five different times 
And, you know, in the middle, in between those times, life just has kind of medium ups and downs. But then there are these times when they're really extreme. And uh, we, we've, we would both agree that in our life together, we've had about five of those times. Four of those times have been right here in Walla Walla since we've lived here. Four of those times. And none of those times are completely resolved. All of those times of free fall continue to... Uh, reverberate in our lives in some form or another. And uh, I know that many of you have had times like that too. Times uh, when you've gone through something and you really can't imagine a positive future after this moment. You cannot imagine how your life will ever look the same. You can't imagine, uh, you can't imagine how the future could possibly incorporate this new reality that you're experiencing right now, this new loss. You cannot see how the future and the present, uh, you just can't envision anything beyond this point. And uh, those are scary times. They feel random. You know, you, you, you hear about things like this happening to other people, but now it's happening to you they feel uh, unjustified. How could this happen to me? You know, I've been a good person. I try to follow God, and then all of this happens to me, and you're processing all of this. And, and you, may, you may respond to turbulence. You, you may, may basically have now, because of the turbulence you've experienced, your own form of PTSD, really, post-traumatic stress. You, that may be you. That you're, you overreact now when, when things go wrong. Or, or maybe it's impacted you to the, to the point where you're afraid, you, you are afraid of the future. You don't even like to think about the future because you're just so scared of it. Or maybe it's impacted you by, uh, having a need to control. You, your life has been out of control and you're, you say, I, that is never gonna happen to me again. I'm gonna control my life and the circumstances of my life so that nothing bad like this can ever happen to me again. And that will kill you and the relationships around you. And maybe you're experiencing that. Your high desire to control as a result of turbulence is kind of ruining everything around you. I mean, turbulence is real. And the most important thing that we bring to a time of turbulence is our view of God. Who He is, what He's like, and who we are to Him. That's the most important thing that we bring into these times of turbulence. And this morning we're going to look at a beautiful psalm that will, that, that will be encouraging to you. Because it's written just for times like this. So if you're in free fall this morning, if you're kind of rubbing your head after hitting the top of the, top of the plane then this psalm is for you. If you're not, and you're kind of smooth sailing right now, and you're enjoying, you know, just kind of enjoying the ride, reading your in-flight magazine, well, this psalm is for you too, because we all know we're either in turbulence or just in between it. So we're going to look at this psalm, and uh, we're going to uh, read it together and absorb it together. So you can open your Bibles to Psalm 121, 121. One of the features of this study, Turbulence, is that we're looking at really classic, timeless, powerful portions of Scripture. Parts of our Bibles that we don't ever want to forget are there. A couple weeks ago, Isaiah 44 and 45. Last Sunday, Psalm 139. This morning, another psalm. You will not want to forget that this psalm is in your Bible, Psalm 121. Before we read it, I want you to notice that right under, right under the title, Psalm 121, it says, A Song of Ascents. 
A song of ascents. Now, Pastor Chris, a few weeks ago, explained to us what a psalm of ascent was. Uh, Psalms 120 through 134 are, all have that title, a song of ascents. And these are psalms that were gathered together into one part of the book of Psalms because they were sung by people, Jewish worshipers, who were on their way to Jerusalem. They were, three times a year, the people of Israel would come together and they'd kind of make a pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship and have these special feasts, they would sing these psalms, the Songs of Ascent. It was their road trip playlist that they took with them and sang. And it's called a Song of Ascent because they were ascending up to Jerusalem, which is on a big hill. And as they went to Jerusalem, up on the top of this big hill, they went through a lot of hills. I have never been to Israel, but I imagine parts of it must look a little bit like eastern Washington. You know, these big, dry hills is kind of what it looks like in my mind. And so they're marching, walking through these hills on their way to Jerusalem, ascending up a hill and singing these songs. And one of those is Psalm 121. Let's read it. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. And Yahweh, the Lord, will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Yahweh, the Lord, will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Now that's a beautiful psalm. It starts out with a question. And the rest of the psalm answers the question. Now, even though this is a song of ascent, it wasn't originally written as a song of ascent. It was originally written by a guy with a problem, and later on was collected into this and and grouped with these other psalms. It wasn't originally written as a song to accompany worshipers on their way to Jerusalem. It was originally written by a guy with a problem. And he is is engaged in this inner dialogue, and that's why you kind of see the the tone change a little bit. He's he's asking himself and then answering. So he's engaged, he's talking to himself, and he's asking a question. And the question is a fundamental question. It's in verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? That's the question. Where does my help come from? Now, if you grew up with the old King James Version of the Bible, or if you're a fan of the musical, uh, The Sound of Music, then you don't remember this verse this way. You remember it differently. If you grew up uh, on the old King James Version, this is how it reads on this verse. I will lift mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Right? And in The Sound of Music... They lift their eyes to the hills, and that's, you know, their help's going to come from the hills. That's what this translation seems to imply, is that help is coming from the hills. But that's really, not, uh, that's really not the intent of this verse, and it's not how any of the modern translations translate verse 1. It's not even how the New King James Version translates 
verse 1. And all you have to do to get the right sense is change the... You don't have to change a single word. Just change the punctuation and you'll get the right sense. Instead of the way it reads right here, where it says, I'll lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. Change the punctuation, you get this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. It's a question, not a statement. It's not looking to the hills as the answer. It's looking to the hills with a question. Where does my help come from? Now, why is he looking at the hills and wondering where his help comes from? What's the connection between looking at hills and wondering about help? Three possible reasons he's looking to the hills and wondering who's going to help him. One of those is because the hills, hills are a good place to hide, right? Hills are a good place. You, you head for the hills. When problems come, head for the hills. Well, hills are a good place to hide. And maybe he's thinking, I, look at, I lift my eyes to the hills. I wonder if hiding there would help me. Is that where my help comes from, hiding in the hills? I wonder if that's where I should go for help. Another possible reason you might look at the hills and wonder who's going to help you is because the hills are a place of danger. In uh, ancient Israel, hills were, hills were where, the hills were where the bandits hid out. And hills, you know, they're, they're a place where wild animals live. And you're looking at the hills as a place of danger. I've got to go through these hills. I see those hills ahead and I have to, if I want to get from here to where I want to be, I got to go through those hills. They're a place of threat and danger. I don't want to do that. I know what lives in the hills. I don't want to go there. Where's my help going to come from? There's a third reason. It's the reason I prefer, but not for any real great evidence, you know. Uh, it's just the one that makes a little bit more sense to me, and it's this one. That uh, in, Israel, in ancient Israel, the, the people who uh, lived around the Israelites who didn't follow God, they had places of worship. And you know where those places of worship were? They were at the tops of hills. They would build an altar and have an idol and offer sacrifice at the tops of hills. That's why you read in your Bible about high places, that, that phrase high places. That's used to describe these hills that on the top of the hill was a place where an idol was worshipped. And often the idol worshipped on that hill was like the god of that little area of geography. So you have a, psalm, a guy with a big problem walking through some hills looking at what other people do for their problems. Looking at who other people go to for their problems and wondering if the help that he needs is going to come from one of the gods of these hills instead of the God that he knows. So, uh, he looks to the hills and possibly says, hey, there's a place to hide. Or he looks to the hills and says, ooh, that's, there's a place of danger and I'm scared to go through that. Or he looks to the hills and says, maybe... One of those guys could help me with my problem. But either way, in a time of turbulence, he's looking at these hills, he's experiencing turbulence, and he says, where does my help come from? And in this inner dialogue, he answers the question, and he says, my help, this is verse, one, uh, verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven 
and earth? That's the answer to the question. My help comes from Yahweh. It's, it's not uh, on, your, on these notes, but capital L-O-R-D. That's God's name. My, my help comes from Yahweh, who is the maker of heaven and earth. Now notice how the God who will help him is so much bigger than the hills he's looking at. Whether he's looking at the hills as a place to hide... God is so much bigger than hiding in those hills. Whether he's looking at those hills as a place of danger and threat, hey, God is so much bigger than those hills. Or he's looking at those hills as uh, wondering whether he should be looking to those gods for help. But he knows that that's not the answer. He says, no, no, my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Do you want your help to come from the hills? Or from the one who made the hills. That's what's taking place here. He says, I don't want my help to come from the hills. I can have my help come from the one who made the hills and everything else. So he answers the question. Where does my help come from? It comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. The God of of heaven and earth. But how do you know he's going to help you? How do you know this God who made heaven and earth is going to help you? You ever ask that question in a time of turbulence? Well, the rest of this psalm goes on to answer that question. Let's just take a look. Now, the rest of the psalm tells us how committed God is to care for his people. That's what it's about. How committed God is to care for his people. And there's one key phrase. There's a key refrain that shows up over and over and over. Maybe you caught it when we read the psalm together. It shows up six times in six verses. One refrain. It's the phrase, watches over. Watches over. Six times in these verses, the phrase, watches over watches over. And then in verse 7, you'll notice that uh, it says, the Lord will keep you. That's the English translation, but it's the same, the verb is the same Hebrew verb as all these other watches over. It's really just another repetition. It doesn't come across in our English translation, but it's another repetition. So you got six repetitions of this phrase, watches over. And the word simply means to guard something. It means to guard and preserve and protect and be the guardian of and that's the refrain that, that uh, continues six different times in this psalm. And so it makes a really clear point. It's not, always as, it's not always as easy as this to find the clear point of a psalm. But really clear right here. And the, the key point is this. God, the maker of heaven and earth, watches over his people. And the scope of this truth that the God of heaven and earth watches over his people, the scope of this is all-encompassing, God's comprehensive care. So let's continue to read about God's comprehensive care. Let's start in verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. God, in his comprehensive care for his people, will not let your foot slip. He's, God has got your back. He's got your foot. He's, he's going to make your life stable. He won't let your foot slip. He who watches over you, not only won't he won't let your foot slip, but he never goes to sleep. He will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Again, the idols of these, the gods of these hills, in ancient Israel, the pagans who worshipped these idols, they believed that their gods needed sleep and that their gods went to sleep 
periodically. I don't think of myself as a fearful person necessarily, but the thought of God sleeping terrifies me. How would you like God to go to sleep on you? That scares me for myself. It scares me for my family. It scares me for the world to think that there would be a time when God would sleep and be not paying attention, not in control of what's happening. Well, fortunately, that's not who this God is. This God, beyond our comprehension, He doesn't have to sleep, and He never does. He never slumbers or sleeps. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your, sh- your shade at your right hand. He protects you. God is the one who comes between you and the heat. And He provides relief and protection so that the sun will not harm you by day. You think of these pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem in the hot of the, in, and just the heat of the sun and singing this psalm about, this, about God being shade at their right hand. So, so the sun doesn't harm them by day, nor the moon by night. You can see how uh, the sun would harm someone by day maybe, but the moon by night, you know, that's a, the moon doesn't seem that harmful. But even in those, today, we have the same thing today. Even in that day, they thought the moon could make you crazy. We have a word that means the moon can make you crazy. It's the word lunatic. Our word lunatic comes from the idea that the moon can make you crazy. They thought that too. And, and I don't know if it means that, that it's protection from the moon making you crazy, or it's just the fact that even at night, you're protected from the dangers that are unique to nighttime. But the point of it is the same either way, that God watches over you during that time. The Lord, verse 7, will keep you from all harm. Keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. So remember, in that verse, we have watch over two times. He will keep you, guard you, protect you from harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going. All right, Whether you are leaving on on a venture or you're returning home from a venture. God is watching over you. He's watching over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. I love what one old British commentator says about this verse, about this last phrase, both now and forevermore. He says this. He says, it's hard to decide which half of it is the more encouraging. The fact that it starts from now or that it runs on not to the end of time but without end. So which half of this do you like better? Which half do you find more encouraging? The fact that God is watching over you starting right now or the fact that He will never stop watching over you? He says it's hard for Him to decide which of those He likes better. I don't know which of those you like better. Maybe it's okay if we like them both because It's true that God says He's watching over us from now to the end. And that's what this psalm teaches. It basically teaches God's comprehensive care over you. If you could put it in a sentence, I would put it like this, that you experience hard times under the watchful, protecting presence of God Himself.
Now let that soak in for a minute. You experience hard times under the watchful, protecting presence of God Himself. Now, you soak that in, and I want you to be comforted by that before I prod you with it, all right, for a minute. Because it is comforting that you experience hard times under the watchful presence of God Himself, but, but there's still a little bit of a snag. Because didn't it say in verse 7, uh, it says in verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. But Pastor Brad just said, you experience hard times. So how can both of these, which, who's right? That God will keep you from all harm or that you experience hard times under the watchful presence of God? I mean, that is a legitimate question to ask. And you, you receive a certain level of comfort from this idea, but then all of a sudden you're like, wait though, you know? That means there are still hard times. Here's how one person asked the question. I, I read a journal article on this passage, and here's what this author says about this. He asked that question. He says, does this psalm guarantee unconditional protection from all harm and danger to the pilgrim, to the person traveling to Jerusalem? Did believers uh, never suffer from sunstroke or fall into the hands of bandits? Did the people singing this psalm as a psalm of ascent never faint from the heat? Where they, they never experience attack? That's a good question because they just sang, God keeps you from all harm. He goes on to answer the question. He puts it like this It is apparent that while the psalm speaks of such blanket protection, the pilgrim must understand that everything that invades his or her life is under God's watchful care and providence. That's really what this psalm teaches us. That if you're a Jesus follower, you exist thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection uh, for you. You exist in a repaired relationship with God. You're, you belong to Him. You're His child. You live in His family. That even though that's true, you still live in a broken world. And we are not guaranteed protection from any possible thing that could go wrong. We're just not. What we are guaranteed, and we do have a guarantee, what we are guaranteed is that since, through Jesus, we are God's people, everything that happens to us goes through God first. You experience hard times, yes, that's still true. But you experience them through the watchful, protecting presence of God Himself. It's not random. It's not something that happened to you that, that is just uh, the way things go. God knows about it. God is fully aware of it. And the God who promises to protect us, the God who in this psalm watches over us, the God who never goes to sleep on you, is watching over you right now in this time of turbulence. And nothing can touch you that doesn't go through God first. Now, I find that to be something that I need to hold on to sometimes. That, that the hard times that I experience have come through God before they get to me. Let me give you two examples from the Bible of this happening. One of those you're probably pretty familiar with. It's the story of Job, right? We know the story of Job, how in Job chapter 1, Satan comes before God and he says, listen, I want to talk to you about that guy Job. 
You think he's so you think he's all you think he's all that, you know, but the reason that he follows you is because his life is like smooth as glass. And I'm pretty sure that if you would let me at him, you let me at Job for a little while, and pretty soon he will curse you. And Satan went to God and said, That's what I want. And God, knowing that all of this would turn out for his glory, and knowing that this would be good for Job, and knowing that this would be a story that would be told to his followers and his people for millennia, said, I'll let you do that. Here are the parameters. And you know the rest of the story. Satan had to go through God to get to Job. We know that story. There's another place where this same thing happens. You may not be familiar with it. It's in the last week of Jesus' life. So everything is, is heating up this last week of Jesus' life. His betrayal is right around the corner. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be crucified. It's all starting to come to a head. That's what's going on. And Jesus wants to prepare his disciples. He knows that the heat is turning up. He knows that things are going to get rough pretty soon. And so... Uh, Something interesting takes place in a conversation that he has with Peter. And this is what he says to Peter. This is all in Luke 22, and you can read about it. Luke 22 says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, uh, I have some words in parentheses to clarify in this verse. Because the first you is plural, and the second you is singular. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Satan has asked to sift you, to sift the disciples, you and, and uh, your friends. He wants to pick you apart, and he's asked to be able to do that. That's the first thing, is that Satan wants to pick all these guys apart. Another observation is that uh, Jesus prayed for Peter, because Peter was the linchpin of these 12 men. And where the way Peter went is the way you know, that the rest of them would go. And so Jesus prays for Peter. Now notice a couple things here. On the one hand, you see Satan asking for permission. He doesn't have direct access to these 12 guys to try to destroy them. He's got to go through God first. And the next thing we notice is that Jesus is praying for Peter. And through Peter, really, praying for Peter as a way of praying for those 12 men, ultimately 11 men, who will need to have their faith strengthened because Satan wants to pick them apart. Here's what I think is the principle behind all of that, is that Satan doesn't have direct access to us. He does not have direct access to you to destroy you. He wants to, 1 Peter First Peter tells us that Satan's a roaring lion. He's looking around. He is looking for a way to destroy you. But he has to go through God first. He wants to bring tremendous turbulence in your life, but he has to go through God first. Everything that comes your way comes your way under the, under the watchful, protecting presence of God himself. Now, I know that if you're hurting right now and you're in a time of turbulence, that is kind of an unusual comfort 
to you because you hurt right now and it's easy to get mad at God about this. And we, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the weeks ahead to help you kind of process uh, the fact that God could have stopped this. It's true, God could have stopped it. But there's more to the story, and we'll talk about some of that next week. But really what I want you to leave this morning with is the knowledge that, that you are going through this under God's direct care and attention. He hasn't gone to sleep on you. He has not turned his head. He has not lost the ability to focus on you and is worrying about something else. What you're going through, you're going through under the watchful, protecting presence of the God who never sleeps. Not only that, you're going through this with Jesus praying for you. Now, here he says he's praying for Peter in that passage we read, but we read elsewhere that Jesus is interceding for us all the time. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that even though you're going through a tremendous time of turmoil, you may go, be going through a tremendous time of turbulence, here's what you can know. You can know that you're experiencing this under the watchful hand of God, that Jesus is praying for you. And if those two things are true, you're experiencing this under God's careful watch, watch, watching protection, and Jesus is praying for you, then that means you're going to be okay. You are going to be okay. God is watching over you. Jesus is praying for you. You are going to be okay. Let me pray with you. God, we know that there are, I mean, there are times in our lives when we just need to hear that we are going to be okay. I think it's possible there's someone here this morning, and this is just what they need to hear, that they're going to be okay. We are so thankful that you are a God who is powerful. You're a God who doesn't need to sleep. You're always paying attention to everything. And we know that because we have, you're our Heavenly Father through Jesus, you pay attention to us. You care about us. I pray for the person here this morning in turbulence that you will reassure them they're going to be okay. There may still be hard times ahead. There may be times of, uh, that will require a lot of faith and a lot of trust and may even continue to hurt. But I pray that you will assure them that you are watching over them and that they will leave this morning knowing that, they're le- that they are living life under your careful attention. For those of us in between turbulence, strengthen us with this knowledge so that when we go through these times, they won't disrupt our relationship with you and our faith in you. Thank you for your clear word, this beautiful psalm that teaches us so clearly. Help us to hang on to this in times of turbulence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.